Welcome to the Mysteries Decoded podcast. I'm Darcy Staniforth, an American Studies scholar and lecturer, but I also love to explore the paranormal. On this podcast, we explore the paranormal, but also the occult, the strange, and the unknown as we try and decode the mysteries around these topics. Today on the Mysteries Decoded podcast, we're decoding witches and witchcraft with Renee Watt and Sarah Lyons. I sit down with these incredible women and discuss their journeys, their practices, and how they navigate their ancient practices in today's modern world. What was that stuff? It's called witchcraft. Our first guest is Renee Watt. Renee and I discuss how she came to make her living as a professional witch. Whoa. Yeah, that's how I felt too. I was like, dang, I'm on fire today. (laughs) We're talking to Renee Watt. She is the host of the Witch Doctorate podcast. Where's my bell? Here it is. Class dismissed. She is a modern-day witch living in everyday life, and today she is going to decode witches and witchcraft for us. So, Renee, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. So can you tell us a little bit about what does making your living as a witch and a psychic look like every day? It's always different, that's for sure. If we're looking at psychic readings, it really depends on what the client wants. If someone wants to understand their natal chart, I I do astrology. Or if we're looking at, you know, I, I almost always pull up numerology and life path numbers or year numbers, but tarot is something that I work with all of the time. I'm also psychic, so I get a lot of information from the other side while I'm in session. And this could come in the form of I'll have physical discomfort. I I once read for a woman and she sat in my chair and I said, you have a UTI, but you have to go to the doctor soon or it's going to turn into a kidney infection. And she said, I went to the doctor yesterday. It's already a kidney infection. And I was just like, yeah, that's how I felt too. I was like, dang, I'm on fire today. (laughs) But it's paying attention to how my body physically changes. If my throat tightens up, that could be an indication that this person has a hard time communicating. So I get little cues like that, but sometimes a past loved one will come through or, you know, I'll be requested to channel a past loved one. And when that happens, you know, usually I will get information about how the person passed. So recently, you know, there was a woman who had heart failure and I just felt, you know, like my heart was being poked with a pin or something like that. Mm. And then I'll see, oh, this person was on life support. They died in the hospital or whatever it is. And then I build off on it. So, you know, it's sort of I get information from past loved ones that will make it so that I can confirm, yes, this is who's coming through. And then usually it's words of encouragement, words of love. If there are unresolved issues, there's usually, you know, that's okay. You know, we were past that. This doesn't matter to me when I'm on that side. I'm just here to be here for you. So that's what comes forth with mediumship. Now, that's just in readings. I also have people that come and they want to develop psychically. I've got readings that are geared completely towards that. And I will tap into someone's energy and sort of take note of where I think their psychic points are the strongest. So if someone's clairaudient, which means you can hear from the other side, well, a lot of time that causes mental chatter at night and people don't know how to work with it or strengthen it or turn it off. And so I'm able to guide people down their psychic path. Mm. Aside from that, custom ritual kits is very popular. People who want love in their life. And I always, you know, I always try to tell people, okay, 
well, this is the love that we're trying to draw in, but we need to look at, you know, what we don't want first. So with me, with a love spell or with a consultation, or if I'm making a custom ritual kit, I usually do a two-parter where you will first banish behavioral patterns in your relationships that you don't want anymore or things that you've noticed that you've attracted that you don't want anymore. First, I'll banish that and then I'll do a drawing in spell to follow up two weeks later on the new moon or whatever it is so Mm -hmm. that people can get rid of the toxicity within their relationships or their relationship patterns and then draw in a more healthy, fulfilling love. So that's sort of how I will guide people through their witchcraft or their psychic development. Can you talk a little bit, I mean, witchcraft can encompass a lot of things and a practice can encompass a lot of things. Can you... If I'm at a party with you mm-hmm. and I'm like, tell me about your belief system, right? But if you were trying to explain your belief system to somebody, what it is, what it isn't, how do you explain that to people? Is there a deity that you're connected with? Are there multiple deities? Because I know some people, even if they come out of a background of faith, right, mm-hmm. and maybe they're not practicing that faith anymore, Christianity, Catholicism, Judaism, things like that, they still will see figures like, oh, but, you know, Jesus still shows up and does these things or guides. Like, how does your practice kind of look if you can if you can put words to that of course yeah well i think that people are are looking for an archetype usually when they're looking at their spirituality for me it depends i i work closely with my spirit guides and it's just you know i sort of it's like everyone's got a team Mm -hmm. of you know people on the other side that work with them and give give you advice if you're open to listening to it and you know how to receive those messages that's what i mainly focus on but I do love working with DDs as well, especially if I feel like I've got to, you know, really bring out the big guns, you know, and I love working with Pan. Yeah. And I also really love working with Hikate. Who's Hikate? Hikate is the witch's goddess. And she is one of the oldest goddesses traced back to Greek mythology. And she's all about empowering women. She's a triple goddess. And so she does path working and her symbol is keys. So it's sort of like opening doors to different realms of your life, but she's very powerful. And I think that the fact that she's just such a strong feminist figure is why I'm attracted to her. And also she's the goddess of the shop that I work at too. We've got a Hakate temple. So Hakate is very powerful in your life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She shows up a lot. Yeah. I know this witchy stuff isn't for everyone, but there's more to the universe than we can explain. What do you think the average non-witchy person needs to know about witches and witchcraft? For the most part, in terms of my position, it's about empowering. It's about affecting your situation through will. It's about having a connection to source or the universe, spirituality, God, if you want to call it that. There are Christian witches. It's not about hexes or curses. It can be about that. But for the most part, people are just trying to take control of their lives. For you, what constitutes a skilled witch? Knowing what systems you're working with, knowing what intention you're putting behind your rituals and why why you're putting it there, Mm -hmm. having a respect for it as well. I see a lot of group rituals because of, you know, my connection to the community And I've literally witnessed a ritual that was done in honor of Pan. Okay. And at the end of the ritual, one of the girls said, and let's all hope that Pan gets a better 
man piece. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, what? If you believe, <laughs> yeah, I was just, okay. So I was like, clearly you're not understanding what this work is about. And if you really believe that we summoned Pan, maybe you shouldn't insult him. Genitalia. Yeah, especially because so much of his archetype is linked to sexuality and sort of being this primal man. That's pretty much the worst thing you could say to Pan. That's the worst <laughs> thing you can say to most people, right? That's true. That's true. <laughs> you know, maybe the things that you would not say to a person in your everyday life, don't say in your spiritual practice. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What's your line where you go, mm, not channeling that, not calling that in? You know, are there things for you that you just absolutely don't mess with? I don't really do hexes. I don't really curse people. I don't care. I'll block you if someone really, really does something bad to me, I might do a sort of like return to sender or I'll <laughs> ask the universe to sort of like, hey, this is what happened to me. Do you mind delivering some karma? Sure. But, but I won't go out of my way to try to make someone's life miserable or direct. I don't even like gossiping about people because I'm afraid that the energy I'm putting out there is going to make them tired or have a headache. Sure. So I really try to not have a negative effect on other people. I think that's important, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, though, that ties into some of the misconceptions that culture has, that, like, witchcraft is about, like, somehow this supernatural justice, this yeah. the idea that you are going to pay back all of these years of, of whatever, you know, in somebody's life. But the reality is, like, for you, from what I'm understanding and hearing, is— this is your everyday practice. This is your beliefs. This mm -hmm. is not about spending all of your energy on, oh, I'm going to get that person, right? Yeah. This is not this weird movie moment that right. people love to engage in witchcraft. And there's like, there's great shows out there about witchcraft and there's <laughs> great films out there that are very fun and we, we have a good time with, but mm -hmm. it's like a snapshot of what being an everyday witch, I guess. Yeah. Like I imagine like like the Donna Reed of witches, right? But like <laughs> but being a modern day witch, right? Because mm -hmm. you what you're really doing is living, you know, you're by no means a Luddite, right? Like mm -hmm. you have a cell phone, like mm -hmm. you engage in social media and yeah. these things. Yeah. For you as a modern day witch, how have you seen witchcraft develop over our digital platforms and the kind of communities that are coming up, whether it be through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, other platforms? Uh, what are your, you know, what have you noticed and what are the things that you're really liking? Maybe the stuff that you're like, mm, I'm good, right? Maybe <laughs> yeah. trend witches, it sounds like not as big a fan of, but some of the other things in those realms that you are enjoying. I love the accessibility of it. I love that there that the information is out there because it does sort of drive people away from the stigma and it makes people more open. But also I think that people are more willing to discuss their own spirituality and people are, you know, more willing to come forward and say, yeah, I see ghosts or whatever it is that they're experiencing that we've societally sort of been told to keep under a blanket mm -hmm. and there are parts of the country where it's very much still unacceptable mm -hmm. and I acknowledge that but I think that the internet and technology is helping it so that you know even if there are people in a remote area if there's you know a little baby witch in Mississippi right now listening to this you know with the their cutest headphones, baby witch the cutest baby witch girl or boy 
or boy. You can have all of it. You can practice your witchcraft. You can be a good person. But I just think that it's good for people to have that sort of tether to pull at and know what their options are. Okay. Getting into this everyday life with it, right? Running a business, but also practicing with people every day. What rules do you have for yourself to make sure that you're protecting your energy and your space in this? Because I imagine encountering people every day as an empath can be exhausting on its own, much less if they're paying you to do it. Right, yeah. So what rules do you have for your own psychic defense? And maybe what are some things that you could tell the listeners? Like, hey, if you think that you're starting to feel this, these are some things you might want to consider. I don't have specific rules, but there is always sort of, especially when I have clients that are regulars there, you have to figure out what that boundary is. Mm -hmm. And that sort of can change based on, you know, person to person. But mostly, you know, I like to visualize myself in a ball of white light. I think that's the best way that people can, it's like psychic defense 101, Mm -hmm. visualize yourself in a ball of protective white light. And I usually do that every night before I go to bed and I just sort of clear out my aura so that if anyone has, you know, thought, even thinking a negative thought about someone can put a hole in their aura and sort of mess with their energy a little bit. So having that ball of white light, it reinforces your energy, it reinforces your aura, but it also clears out anything you may have picked up. But also, you know, I deal with a lot of trauma. Mm-hmm. I deal I deal in people's fears and I, I will feel the anxiety of people and I've got to, you know, figure out, okay, am I having anxiety? Is this someone else's anxiety? And so you've got to take a beat. One of the best things you can do is if you're feeling anxiety, well, ask yourself, what do I have to be anxious about? Mm, and if mm-hmm. there's nothing, then okay. it's probably not yours. Yeah, it's probably not yours. So you just say return to sender, take three cleansing breaths. One of the reasons why empaths feel so much of other people's energy is because we're healers. So if someone's throwing their fear at you or their aggression or whatever, it's sort of like a, a karmic healing session where it's like you could feel it for them and push it into the ground and it's sort of it makes it more bearable for them. But that doesn't have to be your job if you don't want it to be your job. So you can learn to protect yourself by putting up those boundaries. One thing that's really good is visualizing, you know, like the like nonstick Teflon or whatever it is. Yeah. So visualizing sort of that over like your heart chakra or your stomach or wherever it is that is um, or just an entire suit of it. Yeah, or just yeah, exactly. Or a suit of it. Uh, you can also close your crown chakra. Mm. That's it's at the top of our head. And one way that you can be aware of your crown chakra opening up is if you ever feel like your hair is growing, or if there's just like it's like a almost like someone's putting a balloon on top of your head, but it feels like a really light tingle. That's your crown chakra opening up. So you're going to be more psychically sensitive when that happens. And if you're not in a position to where you feel like you can deal with that, just close it up. You can visualize like a camera lens closing mm-hmm. or like a portal shutting, whatever it is that you need to do. Could it be as simple as putting a hat on? Yeah. If that's the intention you put behind it. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's all about intention with this work. It really is. And it's developing a language with the other side. And so it's sort of like the other side is watching you, your guides or whatever it is. And if something is too much, you just let them know like, hey, I need this boundary. Fantastic. Is there anything else you want to tell our listeners about witchcraft and being a modern-day witch? I think that the most effective spells are when you are coming into the ritual from a place of your heart is really good and it's really open. It's, you know, it can be a little bit selfish where it's like, okay, well, I want this change in my life. I want my career to be better or I want, you know, witchcraft is 
about our ego and what we want, what we want to attain, that's fine. But as long as you come to it from a really pure, good-hearted place and you promise to continue to be a good person, I think you're answered more. So being a good person, having a good heart, being more understanding of our fellow mankind and even something as small as giving someone a dirty look on the street, that's unnecessary. You don't need to do that, Mm -hmm. you know? So just trying to exercise, and there are jerks, sure, but just trying to exercise in general some some love and compassion and caring for each other, I think that makes you a more powerful, more effective witch because while shadow work is definitely part of my realm and working with darkness is definitely part of my realm. If we're looking at, you know, drawing in abundance, a lot of the other side doesn't want to work with, no one wants to work with a jerk. Sure. In reality or in the ether. So I think it's just being a good, nice person. Awesome. (laughs) That's what helps. That's what helps. So thinking about some like fun witch questions. Let's talk about some fun witch questions. Yeah. Uh, They're all fun witch questions to me. If you could remake any witch film or witch television show, Mm -hmm. which film or television show would you remake? That like I get to be in and... Yes, Just like, like that lead. you, Renee, get to be the star of. <laughs> oh, God, there's so many good ones. I mean, I think it just depends on my mood because I'm like, well, I love practical magic, but that's when I'm feeling sentimental. If I want to be like a badass, we're looking at the craft or the new Sabrina. Oh, is so the new cool. Sabrina. Holy moly. Yeah. Um, the Love Witch is awesome, too, though. Oh, yeah. The so, Love Witch has a real fun 70s, cool yeah. vibe to it. Yeah. I think I just would want my own original. <laughs> so t- so what's the name of your original witch show if you get one mm, i don't know maybe like shadow self Ooh, shadow self. i like that i like that <laughs> fantastic what is your favorite witchy accessory i mean i like the jewelry that i make <laughs> yes <laughs> those are my witchy accessories that i usually talk about the jewelry you make though okay well one of my animals that is on like power animal is actually spiders. So I will find which a, right now all the listeners are like, <laughs> have them all. Enjoy. <laughs> enjoy all the spiders. <laughs> I love them. I th- oh, my gosh. But if you look at some spiders, like a zoomed up picture of them, they're adorable. They are adorable. They're so cute. But what I really love is the symbolism of them because it's for me, it's a sign of manifestation and bringing your thoughts into reality because they spin a web and they create it from within and they have the tool to build their home just within their bodies, within themselves. So I will go out and I will chase the spider out of their web. I don't hurt any spiders. And also spiders can rebuild their home in one day. So it's not hurting the spider too much. And I'll spray paint the the web and I'll collect it and lay it on a bezel and put some resin over it. And I've got basically a real preserved spider web. And I also dissect owl pellets and get little bones out and do, you know, I do Reiki and weird energy work on all of them. And for that reason, I like those as my accessories because they've got a lot of personal meaning. But also, you know, crystals are great. Right. Crystals, ethically sourced crystals are great. Do you have (laughs) crystals on your person right now? Yes, they're in my bra. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, would you like to see my bra crystals? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Let's see your bra crystals. So what do we have? Ah, some amethyst. Yes. Yes. Is that a Herkimer diamond? They're both Herkimer diamonds. Good eye. Good eye. Which um, a Herkimer diamond will always be ethically sourced because they're mined in Herkimer, New York. 
Oh. So we, you know. Can't get a Herkimer diamond out of outside of Herkimer, New yeah, York. Yeah, not if it's a true Herkimer diamond. Now, there is something similar called Tibetan quartz, but if it's a Herkimer diamond, it comes from, it's like champagne. You know oh, what I, I mean? Yeah, I have a Tibetan quartz mm-hmm. pendant, so, but I also have Herkimer diamonds. Okay. Yeah. I think Tibetan quartzes are okay, too, though. I haven't, because, you know. I think they're okay, too. But Herkimer is for sure going to be okay. So tell our listeners why amethyst and why Herkimer diamonds for you today. Because I'm sure the crystals and the bra switch up. (laughs) (laughs) They do. They absolutely do. So, I mean, I love this little amethyst ball that I've got here. This one was actually a gift to me. And I dreamt about it. Mm. I've dreamt about this crystal a couple of times. But also while I was getting a reading, a psychic was like, oh, you've got this amethyst ball and it's your magic and carry it. So we're talking about witchcraft. So I don't always have this one on me, but I'm like, okay, it's my magic. I'll take it. Sure. Herkimer diamonds are one of my favorite crystals because they're energy amplifiers. So you can pair a Herkimer diamond with any other crystal and it sort of uh, gives it a little kick. Okay. It's like a cup of coffee for your crystals. Nice. But it also, it gives you more energy. And mental clarity, because it's a clear crystal, it sort of helps you to see things in a nice, crisp way. Can I ask you something? Are you a witch? Yes. Yes. So I want to get into some of our fan questions here. Yes, I love that. All right. So at CartooningGuy87 asks, what is the impact of pop culture on magic? How do shows like Charmed, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Supernatural, Magicians, etc., influence practitioners and their paths? And is magic taken from pop culture any less valid than the Gardnerian magic or other established paths? So in terms of, you know, okay, if we're looking at pop culture, anyone who's a developed witch or has been practicing the craft is sort of looking at it as entertainment. And that's it. Now, if you aren't experienced or you're not practicing witchcraft and you're sort of seeing these shows and you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. I'm curious about that. Then it's a gateway. So I think that's sort of the duality between where you are as a viewer okay, or as a yeah. consumer of this fantasized version of witchcraft. Now, if we're looking at is it less legit than a Gardnerian path? Well, it's less realistic. It's less probable. It's, you know. Sure. And I mean, I think really crazy supernatural stuff happens all the time, but witchcraft works a little bit slower in real life than it does. And it's more about the work that you can do on yourself to sort of get to the place that you want to be at. You know, the universe will help you out with a lot of the work that you want to do if you ask it to, but it's not a presto so witchcraft is really about the long game. Yeah, a lot of the time it is. And, you know, you'll <laughs> and if you do the work, it's sort of in my experience, it's been a situation where source will throw you some bones or you'll get surprises or things will manifest in a way that's so beautiful that you never could have imagined. But it is definitely a path that you have to walk. It's not a teleportation device. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> that would be great, though. That would be amazing. Yes. <laughs> that would be, so, I, oh, I would spend so much less time in traffic. Yeah. <laughs> we could just be like, yeah. eh, I don't want to be here mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. At Aaron 89 asks, what was the role of familiars for witches? Were they relevant or even essential for them? And I'm going to add on to that. Do you have familiars, Renee? I do. I have two hairless guinea pigs. One is named Grimoire and one is Solstice, although I think that Solstice may be the only one who's actually a familiar. 
That does not make me love grimoire any less. So can you let our listeners know when we talk about familiars, what is a familiar for a witch? Also, grimoire is a witch's book of spells. Just in case anyone's like, what is that? What did (laughs) she name her? Hairless guinea pig? Like this woman's crazy (laughs) anyway. So why not throw that in? So a familiar is basically an animal that you have a very strong psychic connection with. One way that you can sort of become aware of this is if you have an animal that visits you in dreams a lot, or if you can almost feel like the animal's going to, like you're going to have an animal soon, but you don't necessarily want one or an animal sort of pops up and it's yours and you can't help it because it's your baby. It's that sort of instant connection with animals. I don't think it's necessary for witches to have a familiar, but I do think that it helps their little healers. I've had several familiars throughout my life. And one thing about the concept of familiars is if we're going to look at sort of the aspects of reincarnation, your familiar will likely come back to you again and again and again. So in that, it's a great way because when your pet dies, it's like, okay, we'll see you later in your next body. I'll see you soon. (laughs) Yeah. But I had a rat familiar who her name was Cuckoo. And I had just thought, oh, like, I want a rat. I want a rat. I want a rat. And I looked on my Facebook page and someone said, hey, uh, there's a baby rat that was rescued from a feeder snake, but the lady, like, she can't take care of it, but she doesn't have the heart to feed it to her snake. So does anybody want it? And I was like, that's my rat. That's my rat. That's my baby. <laughs> so, I, so I got her and she was, she was a great pet. They're very smart. Rats are. So Renee, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and helping us decode witches and witchcraft. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I enjoyed myself so much. This is my favorite thing to talk about all the time. So I really appreciate you having me on. Our second witchy guest, Sarah Lyons, a guest from the Witches of Salem episode of the Mysteries Decoded television show. We are creatures of myth and of story and of belief. Sarah and I discuss her appearance on the show as well as the tools she uses in her practice and some that you can use as well. We have Sarah Lyons. She is a witch, writer, and activist living in New York City, and she is a returning guest from the Mysteries Decoded television show. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. So can we talk a little bit about your origin story, Sarah? How did you get started as a witch? Were you raised in it? Was it your surrounding areas? Tell myself and our audience about where did witchcraft start for you? My origin story. Well, a radioactive goat bit me and I got all these powers from it. No, (laughs) no, I (laughs) if only that was how it happened. Much better story. No, I um. I can't really remember a time in my life where I wasn't interested in witchcraft or magic or the occult. And, you know, as a kid, you don't necessarily have the words to go along with that, especially when I was growing up, magic and witchcraft was definitely not as much in the culture as it is now. So I was really into reading books on mythology and, um, you know, folklore and things like that. And then one day I heard an NPR story about witchcraft and Wicca specifically. And I was like, you can do that? And so I like ran. I remember going into the house and running upstairs and like Googling every single thing that I could about Wicca because that was the only game in town at the time. Um, I no longer consider myself Wiccan. I, I haven't for a while. But that was sort of the bug, I guess, when I was a kid. That was the, the thing that sort of set it off. I grew up in a really rural place um, in rural Massachusetts where things like connection to nature and living your life according to certain natural cycles wasn't weird, esoteric thing from the past. It was something that people really lived in a very material way. 
So, you know, it was a big tourist town, so things were very based on the seasons and how much light there was in the sky and, you know, ambiently, I guess. And it was on the coast, so the moon rules everything with tides and with surfing and with fishing. I knew a girl in my elementary school class who had to bring a moon chart to her, (laughs) to the teacher at the beginning of every month because she lived on this island off the coast that the road to it would flood during a full and a new moon. So they had to know like which days of the month she was going to be late for class because of that. So this type of stuff wasn't really alien or foreign to me. It really fit into the world as I was seeing it pretty well. And of course, you know, not everyone was as into this stuff back then as they are now, but I kept up with it and I stuck with magic for, you know, my whole life. I usually give 14 as the age that I self-initiated and self-dedicated myself to witchcraft and to magic. And yeah, I just stuck with it and I pursued it. And wouldn't you know it, in 2019, people love witches. (laughs) You know, you mentioned growing up in Massachusetts and in a small town that happened to be a very touristy town. Did you grow up in Salem? No, I grew up on Cape Cod, but I did grow up going to Salem for October, pretty much every October that I lived in Massachusetts as a kid. And That's what made doing the episode of Mysteries Decoded so special to me because it really felt like I had come full circle in a big way in my life, you know, growing up as a little kid, going to Salem, being like, I just, you know, I want to be a witch so bad. And this is like such a world that I want to be a part of. And I really hope I can do this. And then 10 years later, going back there and getting to see all of these artifacts, getting to talk to people, getting, you know, coming back in this big way really felt like an amazing homecoming. That's amazing. And it's nice that you can have that come full circle later in your life. So talking about Salem and thinking about Salem as a town that you went to, you know, as a teenager growing up and that you've returned to, what are the things that you really enjoy about Salem? Is there a sacredness to it for you? And what are the things that you wish weren't happening around maybe witchcraft or witches in that area? I mean, I would say Salem is definitely kind of a sacred or a special place for me just because, like I said, it was kind of a beacon for me when I was younger. It was sort of a symbol to me of, you know, oh, you can actually do this when you get older. This is a there's a place where this is normal. And one day in your life, you'll get to a place where this is normal for you, too. So Salem will always be special to me for that reason. And, you know, I have a lot of friends who live there now and a lot of great folks that I know who live in Salem and are witches in Salem. And it's a great place. And there's a lot of, you know, there's always a lot of drama going on there. But I think that it's kind of like any other industry town in a way. Everybody kind of knows one another. Everyone's either working with each other and collaborating with each other working against each other or both. And it's witch drama. So curses do get thrown quite a bit. Would you like to join me for a ritual later? So in your own practice, what are some of the tools that you rely on as a witch? I think that's a really great question because I think that one of the things that a lot of people get tripped up on when they start doing witchcraft is they think that they have to buy a bunch of stuff, that you have to go to a store and it's like, I'm not really a witch unless I have three crystals, two incense burners, a cauldron, this many herbs uh, that I don't know what to do with yet, but I need them for some reason and, you know, all all this other stuff. And I think that, you know, there are times that that is definitely called for. There's times where, you know, I definitely 
use stuff like incense, and I definitely use a lot of herbs and plants in my magic. I definitely use objects like I, I collect a lot of rocks from places of power that I go to and and uh, places that I have a deep connection with, and will use that as sort of a way to call in the spirit of that place if I'm doing a particular working or working with a spirit from there. So, you know, there are physical objects that I use in my practice, but I think that your body and the place that you are on, like your body in itself is a magical tool. It's a really incredible thing that can all on its own bring you into ecstatic states just through dance, just through movement, just through crying, just through laughing. There's a whole lot of stuff that you can do just as is and just through. I mean, people don't want to hear this because it sounds so boring. And it took me years and years because when I was a kid, I thought, oh, I want to do magic because I want to make all this stuff. I want to make potions and I want to go out and buy all these things. And it's fun. But I think eventually what I learned was, you know, you get a lot out of it by just lighting a candle and doing a simple ritual and a simple meditation and just connecting to your own spirits and your own ancestors and that sort of stuff gets you so much farther than all of the complicated stuff that you think you need to do. I'm not saying that there's not a time and place for the big complicated rituals and that there's not a, you know, a, a need for those from time to time, but not every ritual you do has to be some Solomonic demon summoning ritual where you have to draw a circle on the ground and call in the the deacons of hell and that sort of stuff. It's fun to do, but you don't have to do it all the time. <laughs> Please don't do it all the time. Do you also consider yourself a healer? I don't consider myself a healer necessarily. I have a lot of people. My family is like weirdly, there's a lot of people in like the medical fields and various forms, like from physical therapy to doctors and all that kind of stuff in my family. So it's something I kind of grew up around, but I wouldn't describe myself as a healer. If I was going to, in terms of clients and people that I work with in my witchcraft practice, I mostly do tarot reading and divining. That okay. is the thing that I am good at, and that is the the thing that I work with people on. Can you explain a little bit to our listeners about your tarot practice and your divining practice, please? Sure. So I've done a lot of work with tarot. When I was still working with Vice, I used to have a Facebook Live show where I would read, like, celebrities' tarot cards, and it would be, like, kind of a Good Morning America, but with the tarot reading in there. So that's probably the, that. if people are listening, they might be familiar with my work doing that. I read for, so like I said, I've read, you know, for big kind of shows like that. I've done readings at events and for fairs. I've read at punk shows before. What about uh, divination? Divination. So, I mean, I use tarot. Tarot is my main form of divination that I use for people. So divination, I guess, for people who don't know, is fortune telling, but specifically usually telling the future in some way. There's different ways to do that and Divination can also be used as a way to talk to spirits. It can also be a way to usually I like so for instance, an, an easy form of divination that people can do at home. You can do this at home. A deck of playing cards is a really great way to do simple divination. If you're trying to talk to a spirit or if you're trying trying to talk to an ancestor and you've done the ritual, you've done the meditation, whatever you need to get into that space, and you're trying to get answers out of them. Instead of busting out a Ouija board or just, you know, automatic writing or something like that, you can take a deck of playing cards and shuffle them up and ask yes or no questions and put down three cards. And three reds will be a yes, three black cards will be a no, like two red cards and a black will be a qualified yes, the, you know, one red card and two blacks will be mostly no, 
So you can kind of use that as a simple way to do kind of divination on that. Or you could just use it as a simple yes, no. If you're looking for yes, no answers on simple things, I use that all the time. Oh, that's fantastic. That is really simple because everyone's got a deck of playing cards around. Yeah, playing cards are really amazing for magic. There's a long history of playing cards being used specifically in like hoodoo and root work traditions and like Southern con traditions. There's a lot of American magic that deals with playing cards, but there's also a lot of things that come from Europe that deal with playing cards as a form of magic too. So playing cards actually have been around for longer than tarot. So there's a lot of lore associated with playing cards for use in divination and magic. Is there a particular type of tarot deck that you are really drawn to or that you use over another? I actually really like the very typical Rider-Waite-Smith deck. That's the one that most people will be familiar with. It's the one where the imagery is pretty iconic and has been adapted into a lot of other decks. It's the one that it's in the public domain, so it gets used in movies and stuff a lot. So I use I use the Rider-Waite-Smith deck quite a lot because I actually do find the images pretty evocative and I have a lot of good work that I've gotten out of it. There's another deck that I love to use called the Alchemical Tarot. What is that deck? The Alchemical Tarot. It's very beautiful. I'm I'm the blanking on the artist's name right now, but it's a tarot deck, but it's, it uses a lot of rich occult and specifically alchemical imagery in it. So there's a lot of deep wisdom that you can pull out of it because it's not just um it's not just pulling on one system or on one set of images or tropes. It's really pulling on this rich lore of alchemy. So there's the you can kind of do it. What I like about it is I can give someone a simple reading with it and be done with it. Or I can really dive in and really get into all of the symbols that are in the card and really pull out some stuff. So it's I like it because it's pretty flexible in that way. You have no idea what these witches are capable of. You know, thinking about the digital realm, what are the benefits you see to the community of witches in regards to being much more globally connected? Well, I'll speak from my personal experience. I remember growing up, you know, going back to Salem, that was a big place for me because it was that was a physical place I could go where I saw this stuff being real in a way that wasn't on television and it wasn't online and it wasn't in books that I could easily access or anything like that. So I know growing up, having a place like that where I knew that I wasn't crazy somewhere in the world, like knowing that I, I gave me a lot of confidence to keep going and it gave me the drive that I needed to keep going. I think if you're someone in who's from a, a rural area like I was or if you are from some place where it's hard to actually get to those spaces, the Internet is a great place to connect with other people and to, you know, share information, to share knowledge. I also think... I was listening to this on a, on a different podcast the other day, and they said they brought up this point, which I think is a really good one. But as the data set grows of people talking about this stuff and, you know, doing rituals and then going on to Facebook or you know Twitter or other online groups and talking about, you know, I did this ritual and this happened. Did that happened to you. Yeah. No. Uh, and comparing notes or people comparing notes on, you know, astrology and what, you know, this transit always makes me feel this way or this always happens when this transit happens. Has anyone noticed that? The more data we have on this, the better this is all going to get and the more information we're going to have. So I'm actually also really just positively looking forward to it because I think the more people are talking about this, the more people are doing this, it's going to grow exponentially. 
And I think our magic is going to get bigger and better. So I'm, I'm super here for witchcraft and magic in the digital age. Hysteria whips people up. Thinking about the episode of Mysteries Decoded that you're on, what do you think about the idea that the original Salem witch trials and the hysteria around that was diagnosed as psychogenic and these more current cases of these high school girls with hiccups and twitches has also been diagnosed as psychogenic. Do you think that there's reality in that? Do you think that all of this was a lot of like, I don't want to call it satanic panic, but in a way because witches, especially in early Salem, were tied to the idea of Satan and the devil. But where do your feelings and beliefs fall on these different cases? Sure. So I think that a lot of people, when looking at the witch trials, both in Europe and in the Americas, people want to find this silver bullet that, you know, that will solve everything. And like, oh, okay, it was all ergot poisoning. It was all mass psychogenic illness. It was it was all this. And if we find that silver bullet, I think there is this weird, maybe not even conscious drive to sort of forgive Europe or forgive people who were participating in that stuff. And also to say, like, this will never happen again because we found the mold that made all this happen and we're never going to have moldy bread again, right? And, like, oh, if it was only that simple, right? you know? And I think the thing to keep in mind is there is no silver bullet that just explains why Europe just decided to lose its mind for a couple hundred years. There's no one thing that happened. I think the complicated answer actually lies a lot more in the rise of capitalism and the incorporation of the land. I think it tested you a lot with the enclosure movement and people's whole ways of life and ways of relating to their bodies, the earth, how they were getting their money, how they were making their food. Everything went through this huge change. And, you know, colonialism is happening. And this kind of is this cauldron that brews all this up. And then suddenly we need a witch trial. And where that connects to Salem and where that connects to mass psychogenic illness is that, you know, look at how different the context was in 1692 versus 2012 when the girls were afflicted, right? It's a very similar thing that happened. It's perhaps a very similar intense social dynamic that leads to people acting this way. And we just don't have the same worldview that people had in 1692. So we're going to react differently. And that is a function of magic. You know, magic is about belief creating reality. If you believe that Satan has come to town and is getting souls and is, you know, having people write their names in the book, you are going to act accordingly. And the same thing is going to happen in 2012. If you believe that these girls are crazy or are, you know, afflicted in some way, you're going to behave differently. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, thinking about all of this, like we have to be aware of um, cultural projection and contextual projection and trying to project what we understand about context, about mental illness, about all of these things back onto people of that time and age. I mean, the Puritans also felt when people were getting outside of the the witch trials, but like when, you know, somebody committed a crime and murdered somebody, they would sit in jail and people would visit them every day until they converted them and repented back to Christ so that they could then deliver an execution sermon as they were being hung. Like the Puritans were always like, got to get back to God. 
which is very yeah. different than a lot like the ways that our belief systems would go. But I think also, you know, talking about capitalism and colonialism, I think for, you know, many people who don't have a true understanding of the expansion of capitalism in the world, they think that colonialism has ended. But I mm. think it's a very America-centric version of colonialism that they think ended. Like, we got to California, so we're done. But colonialism <laughs> in different forms is spreading all around the world. I think that it's, you know, bringing it back to witches, a lot of the testing ground for the witch trials and for the violence of the witch trials and the actual just mechanisms that were used were used first on indigenous people in Africa and in the Americas before it was brought back to Europe and used on its population. Uh, violence like this always begins on what is considered the margins of a society before moving deeper and deeper into the heart of a society. And then once it gets to the very heart of a society, once it reaches the center of a metropole, the center of power, that's when it tends to stop because now the people who created that whole system are coming to be affected by it. In Salem, we see this very clearly because, you know, it starts with the people who are easily disposed of. It starts with the people who don't have much land, who don't have much money, who can't defend themselves easily. But eventually, one of the judges' wives gets accused of witchcraft. And now we have to put a stop to this whole thing, you know. Now this has gotten out of hand. So, yeah, I think it's important to keep that in mind. Whenever we get that deadly feeling that this is all just a thing of the past— I think it's very important that we look out to the margins of what violence we're currently doing or us or any other society is currently doing on its margins and seeing that move closer and closer in. I guess I got a little dark there, but we're talking witch trials, right? I'm not super familiar with what witches do. This is a very powerful thing to a lot of people. Okay, so let's move into a couple questions from the Twitterverse. Ooh. All right, at Sean the Roaster would like to know, what is the biggest misconception about witches you think people have? Hmm, the biggest misconception. I think that there's a couple big ones. I think, one, a lot of people think that it's a religion and not a practice. And it can be a religion, but... For me and for a lot of people that I know, for most people that I know who practice witchcraft, it's not a religion. It's a it's a craft the same way that you can like practice yoga and be a Buddhist or an atheist or Jewish or what have you. It's a craft that can be applied to people of differing faiths and backgrounds. So that's one big misconception I think a lot of people have. I also think a lot of people and this is a very both of these, I think, are very innocent and, and not malicious things that people believe and I think they come from a good place. That's what I should say. I think that a lot of these beliefs come from a good place. But um, I think a lot of people also think that there's no kind of darkness in witchcraft. You know, there was a—I think witches maybe got a bad name for so long that there was this sort of uh, maybe respectability campaign that's like, witchcraft isn't evil. We are your neighbors. We are your doctors. And it's like, that's all true and that's all good. And, like, most witches I know are lovely, nice people and wouldn't harm a fly and, like, that kind of stuff. But also, like— Witchcraft does involve cursing. It does involve talking to the dead. It does involve dark stuff. So it's it's not all darkness, but it's also not all light either. And I think that that's an important, you know, striking that balance is an important thing to remember. Well, I mean, as people, we're not all light either. I mean, we have our exactly. dark sides and we have our light sides and we have our good days and our bad days. 
So when <laughs> anybody thinks, you know, but I mean, that's also true of religions. I mean, like religions mm-hmm. are not all happy and light all the time. There is there's a lot of death and darkness and war in most traditional religious practices and their histories. So you can't have the light without the dark. Yeah, there's an old saying that says a witch that can't hex can't heal. So and I actually really do believe that. At why Sani 11 asks, how do you feel is the way to have an authentic practice and not feel like you're playing pretend? That's a really good question. I think that has to come from within. And I think it has to come from it's very easy, especially with the Internet, to compare yourself to what other people are doing and play this game of like keeping up with the Joneses witchcraft style, you know, and and thinking like, oh, well, they have skulls on their altar. I need skulls like, oh, they have crystals. Better buy crystals like and the looking at all of the outward stuff to give a sense of like authenticity or things like that. I think what's better is honestly like strip down to absolutely nothing in your practice, like strip down to just like having a candle and a piece of cloth and like that's your altar. Right. And then just start to do tiny workings, like start to do very small, like trying to connect with your ancestors, trying to connect with, you know, doing a guided meditation and and connecting with spirits that are around you, doing a guided meditation and connecting with the moon, like doing stuff like that out of that will grow an authentic practice because it'll be one that you're discovering and it, and the things that you do end up buying or the things that you do end up making or the rituals that you begin to incorporate into like perhaps your daily life are going to come from a place of authentic need, an authentic connection, and not because you read it in a book somewhere that you had to do that, you know? Absolutely. Sarah Lyons, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Mysteries Decoded podcast. It has truly been a pleasure to talk about witches and witchcraft with you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lovely conversation. Thank you for listening to the Mysteries Decoded podcast. I hope you enjoyed decoding witches and witchcraft with us, and I look forward to you joining us next time to decode our next mystery. The Mysteries Decoded podcast is brought to you by the CW Podcast Network and is hosted and produced by me, Darcy Staniforth. Our executive producer is Jen Titus. Our audio engineer is Joel Smith. Our editor and audio producer is Joshua Sterling Manley. 